This is a Federal News Network podcast. A week after the General Services Administration released the first two solicitations for its much-anticipated Polaris small business contract vehicle, the first of what could be many protests landed at the Government Accountability Office. Now, GSA made a last-minute change to that solicitation requirement, and that's causing heartburn among many small businesses planning to bid. The vehicle's potential 10-year life, though, has a $10 billion ceiling. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why GSA's change, about what's required from mentor-protege joint ventures, to be exact, is causing so much concern. And Jason, let's start with a quick review of exactly what Polaris is and what GSA's goals are for it. Well, if you've been living under a rock or you're not really paying attention to the small business world like I have, Tom, because, you know, I'm a big fan of the small business government contract. Well, not every listener has. I know, but I'm asking you to tell us. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, what Polaris is is a 10-year $10 billion government-wide acquisition contract, a GWAC, right? Multiple work contract, I think upwards of 300 vendors, small business vendors from across the socioeconomic categories, 8A, women-owned small business, hub zone, service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses will be awarded spots on this deal. This is replacing the former contract known as Alliant 2 Small Business that never really got off the ground. GSA had awarded it twice and then got protested and lost or, or had to make take corrective action in those protests. And eventually, in 2019, just threw their hands up in the air and started over. This is what they started over. And once again, Tom Polaris is around IT services, IT products, with a specific focus on emerging technologies, of course, artificial intelligence, automation, uh, distributed ledger technology, edge computing, immersive technology, and the like. All right. And they made a change to the mentor-protege joint venture part of this. What is that? And why was this such a disconcerting change for at least two protesters? GSA put out a Q&A a week before the solicitations dropped. And the Q&A really changed the way what, what mentor-protege joint venture ventures can bid or how they can bid, right? So first of all, Tom, let's be clear. A mentor-protege discussion can be a small business and a, and a larger small business, or it can be a small business with a large business. Think of CACI. Think of SRA uh, or, or whatever they're called these days. Think of uh, Booz Allen or Deloitte or whomever it is being a mentor to this protege. And what GSA did with this Q&A was say, not all the past performance or relevant experience needs to come from that small business. In fact, none of it does. The mentor-protege team can submit all five of their experiences together, meaning if I'm a small business and I have a large business mentor, that large business can submit all that relevant past performance, all that relevant experience to get mu- to get all the scoring points you need on the self-scoring checklist that GSA is using. Now, the difference here is if I'm a small business that is not in a mentor-protege joint venture and I don't have a large business partner, I can no longer You're stuck with you because you as a large business can have a billion dollar experience and I can only have $5 million experience and the number of points are not the same. Right. Could this have been GSA's way of trying to ease the way for new companies in the market that don't have that history that might have the innovation agencies say they want? I've talked to several experts, including Cy Alba, who's a partner with Polaro Maza, the law firm, and he goes, what he thought happened was GSA just swung that pendulum too far. 
They saw what happened with the NITAC program CIO SP4, which, by the way, Tom, as an aside, has another set of protests against it. We'll get to that maybe another time. But what he thinks happened is they saw what happened with the with what CIO SP4 did with the mentor-protege challenges. And GSA said, you know what? We don't want to go through what they went through. We'll just swing that pendulum all the way to the right and allow all relevant past performance to be attributed to whomever, small or large businesses. And he thinks that's just gone way too far. And it's also part of SBA regulations that said, hey, we realize with category management, we realize with these large best-in-class contracts, BICs as they're called, uh, we realize that these these contracts are getting bigger and they're harder to get on for small businesses. Sure. So we're giving you some, some help there through these mentor-protege joint ventures. All right. So Polaris is picking up some barnacles of protest here. What do the protesters want, just to go back to the way it was before the modification? So the folks at BD Squared, which is a small business marketing consulting firm that represents, works with a lot of small businesses, followed a pre-award protest with the Government Accountability Office. And basically what their protest basically says is what GSA did, while laudable to assist small businesses, the solicitation actually harms the small business community and goes against SBA regulations. The reason why, again, is because they're allowing the large business to, to submit all the relevant experience, all the relevant past performance, all the certs and reps. And that really puts the small business community, which is what Polaris is supposed to be serving, if you're not a part of that mentor-protege. And there's about 1,500 mentor-protege program participants, not all large and small business teams. Wow. But it does put them at, at a complete advantage over non-mentor-protege small businesses who may be bidding. And they would like GSA to take corrective action, go back, and at least require some participation in terms of past performance, relevant experience, certs and reps by the small business protege of, the, of that partnership. And GAO has not ruled yet, correct? They just followed the protest just uh, early, earlier this week, so GAO has 100 days. Got it. And does GSA have anything to say about this? Unfortunately, they did not. They declined to comment based on this as an active solicitation. We understand that. But at the same time, I'll just throw out their time. I did ask these questions before the solicitations were active, asking for some feedback on why they made these changes and why they made them in such a surprising way without giving folks time to prepare. Uh, Cy Alba, again, the lawyer, tells me it can take up to 105 days to create a a mentor-protege relationship through SBA, there's not enough time to create new ones to bid on this program. All right. So what happens now? Is this thing on hold or what? I think we wait. We wait to see what, how quickly GAO either A, makes a decision, B, if GSA decides not to go forward with this and, and, and defend themselves and just take corrective action, or C, they still take on the bids and then they wait to see what GAO rules. So there's a lot of kind of we're going to wait and see what happens and we're going to wait and see if other people follow BD Square and decide to also submit some protests. So we'll, I'll be checking that docket quite often. Yes, these things can sometimes turn into pylons. I think that happens all the time. You saw that with uh, CIOSP4 where they faced something to the effect of 24, now 26 protests. Now, to NITEC's credit, they won all of them. But the fact is these protest delays, 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 what they really want to get to, which is award and get the contract vehicle going. Yeah, 100 days here, 100 days there. Pretty soon you've got a year. You've got real money. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity. 
and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.